If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to take them and open them first, not to Luke. I want you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes, go to the very middle of your Bible, you hit the Psalms, go to the right, you hit Proverbs, and the next book is the book of Ecclesiastes. We've come in our study through Luke's Gospel to a three-hour window in which something happens in our text today that is of such magnitude that the earth and heaven shudder. Not sci-fi, digital expressions, but they really convulsed. Heaven and earth shook. And if we're going to understand what happened in these moments in Luke's gospel, I think there's some advice from Solomon that we can take to heart. The preacher, Solomon, is, is reflecting on the value of death. And you didn't mishear me, the value of death. In these couplets, Solomon invites us to find worth, if I can say it that way, in the very thing we deem worthless, or even worse than worthless. Just follow along in your Bibles as I read these four stanzas. Solomon writes, a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for when the face is sad, a heart may be happy. Verse four, the mind, or again, literally, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning while the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Let me read it one more time, only this time I'm going to take the New Living Translation. I think we get what he's saying. Let me reinforce it with this reading. A good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume, and the day you die is better than the day you are born. Better to spend your time at funerals then it parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. We are going to the house of mourning today. Luke puts us at the cross as Jesus dies. Solomon said a wise man thinks a lot about death. This is not a morbid statement. By way of comparison, a wise man thinks more about death than having a good time. That's what he's saying. I had someone say to me recently they had spent the day and the better part of the day at a funeral home, at a cemetery, making arrangements for a burial. And they said to me, those places make me feel uncomfortable. And my prayer is, as we spend time in the presence of death this morning, 
our uncomfortableness might actually be the beginnings of a greater understanding and a deeper gratitude for the death of our Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, it is a very dark day we have come upon in our text, both today and next week. And our prayer is that sorrow and sadness would truly have a refining influence on us. That reflecting well in this house of mourning, we might gain insight that would change us and change the way we live. Such that when we die, you might be glorified. Amen. Okay, now you can flip back to Luke chapter 23. Go all the way back here where we are. Luke chapter 23, we're in verses 44 to 49. Let me invite you to stand one more time as we read God's word. Luke has brought us in our journey through Good Friday to the day of Jesus' death. He writes, it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent or righteous. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. You can be seated. Thank you. You notice Luke doesn't really tell us much about how Jesus died. It seems his greatest concern is making sure we know he died. (laughs) Here's what happened when he died. And our concern this morning is what do these things mean? If we outline the passage, he tells four things. He says, the earth convulsed, the veil was torn, Jesus cried out, And the people responded. So as we go through the passage, I'll just use that as our guide. Those four things that happened. The earth convulsed. We we know from other gospel accounts that on this day, (coughs) there was a great earthquake. Luke only describes the darkness, but Matthew says that there was a great earthquake that split the rocks. Now, that means it was a great earthquake as he died. Matthew and Mark also record this darkness that envelops the land for three hours. Uh, You'll recall when Bill was teaching back in chapter 22, Jesus said to those arresting him, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And so many do see this darkness that envelops the land as, as evil's presence during this time. And that's not, that's not untrue. 
But I want to suggest that the darkness that enveloped the land is not the oppressive presence of evil. I mean, evil's there, but that's not what that is. I want to suggest that in the context, it is in fact the overwhelming presence of God in the darkness. You see, in the Old Testament, darkness was a sign of judgment. A number of passages we could go to, Amos, Zephaniah, Joel. I'm going to take the Amos passage as it, as it describes judgment in darkness. Amos 8, 9 to 10, you don't need to turn there, but Amos writes, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. What's the context in this passage? The context is that God is telling his people, you need to know, I will never, I'm not going to forget your sins. I'm not going to forget your rebellion. I'm not going to forget your evil deeds, but I'm going to judge them. I'm, I must judge them in justice. And he says, it's going to be so bad, you're going to mourn as if for an only son. In that culture, in that time, we've said this before, to, to, to lose an only son is to lose all hope. So because you lose your only son in that day, then you have no family future. Just tuck that away as we stand on Calvary. So much we could think about that God loses his only son. It's a day of judgment. The darkness that envelops the earth tells us God is judging sin. I do want you to turn in your Bibles, just a little deeper Bible study here for a moment. If you'd flip back in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, I want you to see something as well. Genesis, Exodus. You're going to go to Exodus chapter 10. And here what we find is uh, we're in the, the ninth plague. There are 10 plagues. The 10th plague is when God judges Egypt by taking their firstborn. And I want you to notice the ninth plague just before he takes their firstborn. You recall, the Jews, they, they didn't have their firstborn taken because they slayed the lamb, the unblemished lamb, and put the blood of the unblemished lamb on their door frame, so to speak. So the angel of death passed over them, but took in judgment every firstborn of the Egyptians. But notice what the ninth plague was, verse 21, chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness that may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three Days. In Luke 23, the lamb has been slain, and there's darkness over the land for three hours. How dark was it? Anybody watch movies, watch the Bible? You know, we don't know how dark it was. 
But I want to suggest if the darkness at the Passover in Egypt could be felt, then the darkness as God judged the sins of humanity at Calvary, I think you could taste it. I think it was dark. A dark you could feel. Darkness tells us this is a moment of judgment. God is pouring out his wrath on evil, sin, and wickedness, right? That's what this darkness is. Here's a question. When God pours out his judgment, the wicked are destroyed, right? Look at the, read the Old Testament. Every time he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, judged, you know, all the wicked are destroyed. But what happens on Calvary? Why is it that God, why is it that if God is pouring out his judgment, all the wicked live? And there's only one, he's innocent, and he dies. Luke answers that, and you know, we know the answer, but Luke answers it in the next statement. He says, the veil is torn. The veil of the temple is torn in two. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that this veil was torn. Matthew says it was torn from the top to the bottom. My hope is that if you were around in our study through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews you'll remember we, we looked at this in depth. For the book of Hebrews takes all the Old Testament rituals in the temple and the tabernacle. And it shows how all of those things were pointing toward, they were all the shadow, and they were all pointing toward the reality, which would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that in the temple, uh, you, you'll recall this, that the, the, the temple's a, you know, it's a big rectangle. And it's, it's got a, there's a, there's a fence on the outside or in the temple, now, now in the temple, there's a wall that's all around the outside. Okay. And people come in from this end and they've got to go through so much before they can get toward the back. And I'm just making this very broad, but in the back end within the big rectangle, there's another rectangle. And within this rectangle, there's a veil that divides the middle. And the front part of this building within the walls is called the holy place. Then there's the veil that separates it from the holy of holies. And you see in the holy of holies, God dwelt. And the veil was there to separate man from God in this way. It's not that God didn't want people to be near him. See, see, you can take, you can take, well, why did he build a wall around the place? Why did he put himself in a building? Why did he hide behind a veil? I mean, why all the, you know, why all the prevention to get to him? Please understand this. From Genesis to Revelation, God said, I want to be with my people. In fact, I will be. Then why all the walls and veils? Because if you go to God the wrong way, you die. So it's not God doesn't want to be with us. We've got to understand there's only one way to come into God's presence. 
And so as we studied in Hebrews, that, you know, the, the, on, on Day of Atonement, the, the high priest, only he could go into that back room, into the Holy of Holies. Only he could go behind the veil. And only he could do that after he had washed himself, after he put on the ceremonial clothes, after he had slayed the bull, after he took the bull's blood, after he brought in the incense to, you know, block the glory of God from his own eyes. And only all, after all this, could he go in there behind that veil and sprinkle that blood on the top of the ark. And when that blood was on the top of the ark, God looked down and said, all of you deserve to die because you've sinned. But because that bull has died and that blood was shed, you're okay for another year. Right? That's how they lived for thousands of years. They had to have a day of atonement. But on this day in Luke 23, when Jesus, the Lamb of God, shed his blood on the cross, the veil keeping people from the presence of God was torn because now the way to God has been opened, but there's still only one way, but it's not the blood of bulls and goats. It's the blood of Jesus. And in his blood, we enter in behind the veil. tells us this, that on this day in Calvary, when the darkness fell and the judgment of God was poured out, the judgment of God was focused like a laser on one cross, on one man, and it was poured out. Now keep this in mind. Uh, if you're looking up like if this was a linear time progression. At the cross, it was poured out on one man. We've said this before and bears saying again. When Jesus comes back again one day, the judgment will fall again, you see. But it won't be on the one man at the cross. It'll be on anyone who's not in that cross in Christ. It's just sobering. The earth convulsed, the veil was torn, and Jesus cried out, verse 46. Jesus was put on the cross at nine in the morning, according to Mark. Three hours passed, and at noon, the darkness fell. Three hours passed and then Jesus cried out his last words. You could say it like this and others have. In the first three hours on the cross, the first three hours, Jesus suffered the wrath of man. But, but in the second three, he suffered the wrath of God. What we're reading right now here in Luke 23 are the very moments in which God unleashed his wrath upon the wretchedness of sin 
and he poured it all on Jesus. I'm just, it's a holy moment. John MacArthur said this so well, I'm simply going to quote him of this moment. He said, quote, it is the presence of God in full judgment, vengeance and fury, Infinite wrath moved by infinite righteousness releases infinite punishment on the infinite son who can absorb an eternal hell for all who will ever believe in three hours, end quote. I got to tell you, I've never thought about it like that. That it was in those 90 minutes or 100, uh, 180 minutes in those, in those three hours that all the wrath of God against sin of all of those who would believe in Christ was poured out. He, he could absorb it in those three hours. And then having paid sin's penalty, he cries out. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, let's get into these moments, these three hours. <clears throat> when God poured out our punishment, what we deserved, when he poured it on Jesus, you understand Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, he was forsaken. Three hours pass. And what's the first word that comes out of his mouth in our text? And these are the last words of Jesus from the cross. What are the, what's, what's the first word that comes out of his mouth at the end of those three hours? It's in your Bibles. What's the first word? I want you to say it. What was it? Father, you've forsaken me. And he was forsaken. Three hours pass. Father. You see, the penalty for sin had been accepted. Jesus' blood and sacrifice satisfied God's wrath because indeed he was forsaken, but the first word out of his mouth was Father. It's like this. I was forsaken to pay the price for my sin, your sin. It satisfied God, and I'm forsaken no more. He's not forsaken when he says, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Luke says he actually screamed it, he yelled it. Loud is megas, voice, loud voice. He did it in a loud voice, loud megas, voice, phone, megaphone. Why do he yell it so loud? Because he wanted them to hear and us to hear, I think, at some level. I'm forsaken no longer. I was forsaken so that you would never be forsaken if you trust me. When Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit, he indirectly informs us what death is. This isn't what this is teaching per se, but it's certainly true. You understand death is not when your heart stops beating. It's not when your brain waves cease. It's not when you stop breathing. You understand death is when your soul 
is separated from your body. And when that separation occurs, that's death. Another reason it seems that he cried out as he did was, I I think, and Luke would say to remind us that he didn't succumb to death. See, See, death didn't win the day. Oh, no. His death was his choice. John 10, 17, no one takes it away from me, but I lay my life down on my own initiative. On my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This is the commandment I received from my Father. I, I, I just want us to grasp that when Jesus breathed his last breath, It's not because his physical organs failed. It's because he had said, I'm finished. It's finished. It's done. And he chose to die. Oh, death. Right? Paul says it. Death, death, where is your sting? Death didn't sting him to death. Death didn't take him. He gave himself over when it was finished. The earth convulsed, the veil was torn, Jesus cried out, and then the response of the people. I won't read it again, but he gives us three people, the centurion, the crowds, and his acquaintances. The centurion began to praise God. He said, this man was righteous. Certainly, the death didn't leave him neutral. The crowds went away beating their breasts. What are they doing? Well, they... uh, They went to see a spectacle. You note the word Luke uses. So they went to be entertained. And they left grieved. Mourning. It might be akin to, you know, the stories of people who went out to see Civil War battles. You know, people literally did that, like got dressed up and took picnic baskets. But they didn't leave cheerful. And neither did the crowds. And then the acquaintances, it simply describes the disciples and the women. It just says they were standing at a distance. We don't need to be real hard on them. Like, why didn't you guys get in there? You know, they couldn't. The the soldiers would not allow it. I, I want to suggest that in these three groups, really what Luke, it seems, is doing is tied together by this idea that they all saw something. Uh, notice, notice in the text itself, verse, seven, th- verse 47, the, the centurion saw. Uh, verse 48, it says the multitudes observed. And then verse 49, it says the disciples and the women seeing. W- what's Luke doing? I-, I think he's doing this. He's simply gathering credible witnesses. See, after the death, there are going to be some who say he didn't die. There are some who say, you know, he just swooned. No, he wasn't dead when he was on the cross, and that's why he's in the grave. He's, I think Luke's just going, I want you to know some things for sure, right? His whole thesis. And let me take these three and let me tell you something. They saw with their own eyes this man, Jesus, die. Let me offer you two lessons we may take away from this. And it's just a weighty moment, isn't it? Two thoughts for you to consider. The first would be this. 
God is present in our darkest moments. God is present in our darkest moments. Can, can I say this? There was, ne- I, I think it's true, isn't it? I think you'd agree with me. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a darker moment than this. I don't know that there could be, because this was the sinless son of man suffering injustice. There was never a darker moment. I don't think there was ever a darker moment for the disciples. I'm going to say something about that in a moment, but let's just go through their life. Let's read the book of Acts. Go through the, I don't think there was ever a darker moment than this one. It's a hard truth, but a true truth. God does not prevent the darkest moments. I've already said he's present in them. He doesn't even prevent them. But he orchestrates and transcends them. He most certainly did in this. This was not an accident. This was not things got out of hand. Read the first two chapters of Acts. He's not culpable for evil. He's never impotent. Like he didn't have the power to stop it. He can't stop it. He's never impotent, nor is he unkind. He is God. He's God, and the schemes and the purposes of evil do not thwart his purposes. But in the mystery of his will, they only serve his purposes. Again, let let me just use... Take this example. There has been nor ever will be a more gross injustice than the sinless son of God being crucified by sinful sons that he created. Hear me in the right way. Please hear me in the right way in this. There is evil in this world, the Holocaust. I don't even want to say the names of things. You know what I'm saying? There's But, can I say it this way? I don't mean to be callous at all. They don't compare to this. They don't compare to this. They really don't. And yet in this, God transcends it such that this darkness, he transforms it for his glory and our good. I'm just telling you, I don't fully fully understand that. But the Bible teaches it. And can I say it's true? It's not just true for Jesus. I want you to understand. It's not like you can say, well, that was his son. Of course he did it for him. No. We are his sons and daughters. And he does it for all of us. Here's the second thing I want you to consider. I already said it. I I think this is the most difficult moment in the life of the followers of Christ, the disciples. This is is the dark moment, I, I think. In the most literal sense, their hope has just died. What they had been longing for uh, has been extinguished. Um, you know, think about it. Go all the way back, and we've been reading Luke's gospel all the way through. Uh, you know, Jesus calls them, they they believe he's the Messiah. 
they leave everything behind. They endure abuse and hardship. They have nowhere to lay their head. They're banking it all on him. We're going to follow you to the end. You're our hope. It's going to turn out. Everything they were hoping for is dead. It's gone. It's over. It's dark. All the evidence says all is lost. And I want to suggest at this point they had a choice. And if I can take it from them to us, it's always at this point that you and I have a choice. Are we going to live by what Jesus promised or what the world delivers? Always. I assure you, there is enough pain in this room that this is a relevant question. And it's for me, will I choose right at the greatest loss to say I will live, I will live, I I will choose to live by the promises of Jesus, not by what life has delivered to me. See, I think life is, life will never deliver the kind of hope we need. It, it, It can't, it won't. Only the promise of Jesus can do that. And and lest we forget it, I'm not going to get there. It's two weeks before we get there in the text. But he promised he would suffer. He would be rejected. He would be killed. What else did he promise? What else did he promise? I'll rise again. And we're not there yet, you know, in the story, but... If he rose again, he keeps all his promises. I wrote this sentence to myself. I'll share it with you. I'm wondering about it. But there's been several things happen in my world in the last three weeks that, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll do a funeral this afternoon. I did a memorial last Sunday. With circumstances that are just devastating. And it makes me think this as I sit in the house of mourning. The essence of real hope is to lose hope in everything but Jesus and his promises. And so maybe, just maybe, the difficulty you're facing, the loss you feel, the hurt, the hardship, the attack on your hope, I wonder if it may be God weaning you from false hope.
to bring you to the only hope that never disappoints. Jesus. He rose. He lives. And he promises that we will too. Forever. And all the hurt and pain and loss, this side of our death, he said, he promised, I'll bring you through it. And I will use it for your good and my glory. I want to ask Carl and Brianna to come back out. Such a, such a heavy message. I think heavy in a good way. I've asked them to come out. We're going to sing our benediction. Oh, sacred head now wounded. I want you to look up at the icon, the statue of Christ. See, he stayed on that cross. Yes, his head wounded. You know, the, the, the original song covered all parts of his body. We now know it as primarily his head. And I wanted to sing this song at the end simply because in the house of mourning, I don't want us to forget our hope. It, let's be honest. That doesn't look like hope. But it is. It's our only hope. Let's stand together. Oh God, we are standing in the house of mourning. Our Savior is dead. Our hearts are sad. Our hope is waning. What would you have us learn, Father? How would you have this sadness refine us? sacred head now wounded with grief and shame weighing down now scornfully surrounded with thorns and only crown how pale Call on me.
transgression but thine the deadly pain may our sadness at this thought refine us amen you are dismissed <laughs>